So today we are in Jude. Hopefully you're there. If you've reached Revelation, you've gone too far. It's right next to that. Just by way of reminder, since it's been about a month since we since we looked into the book of Jude, this was written by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He was writing this letter to believers in the early church who had been shaken in their faith by some false teachers who had infiltrated. It's actually really providential that we read from Second Peter 2 because Second Peter, particularly chapter 2, deals with a lot of the same things that Jude is dealing with in his letter here. So we'll, we'll get to the purpose of why Jude is writing this book in today's passage. But just as a reminder, he is, he's stated that he is writing to believers and he paints this beautiful picture of the Christian faith by the way that he describes his audience, those who are called, who are beloved in God and kept for Jesus Christ. God has called us to faith and He's made us alive in Christ by His grace and by His love. And He has promised to keep us as His children for all eternity. He, Jude wants to make that clear from the beginning before he digs into the falsehood of these teacher, these other teachers so that he can lay a, fundament, a foundation of fundamental truth to lay everything else on. We have to make sure that we understand what the Bible says before we can really comprehend what is exactly wrong about the, 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 the teachings of these false teachers. The best way to spot a fake is to know the original so well that you can notice when anything is out of place. Uh, this week I went on to the U.S. Currency Education website. I bet you didn't even know that that existed. And they have a brief training course on that website where you can learn about the specific security features that are in each uh, United States banknote. The, the specific things that make each banknote uh, unique and certain security measures that need to be in place in order for it to be considered real and not a counterfeit. Uh, they even give you an, an exam that, that you take to make sure that you know what to be looking for. They show you everything that ought to be there and then they give you a, a test where you have to see if the, if that thing that they, that, the, that security measure that's on that particular piece of currency is actually there. And in full honesty, full transparency, I only got an 8 out of 10 on that exam, and I will get over it eventually. (laughs) The government has provided this little course so that anyone who wants to can know for sure if they're holding a genuine piece of currency or not. You may have a true $20 bill, $100 bill, whatever in your hands, or it might be something that is worth absolutely nothing. Actually, no, it's it's even worse than that because if you are caught counterfeiting currency, you could face jail time uh, anywhere from 90 days to 20 years, and that could include a fine of up to a quarter million dollars if you're caught counterfeiting. So this is not just something that's worthless. It could cost you a whole lot. It's a lot worse than being worthless. And that's the nature of this false teaching that Jude is condemning in his book. This is not just worthless teaching from some people who have entered the church. This is dangerous. It is destroying the faith of some. And it is showing the, the fact that these false teachers will be destroyed, will be punished for all eternity. This is very costly Judas already brought the reality of faith to his audience's attention, and now he's going to start showing the error of these false teachers by way of some examples from the past. And he's expressing to us in this the importance of fighting for the faith. You must be ready to fight for the faith in any circumstance. So with that in mind, let's read through Jude verses 3 through 10. Jude 3. Beloved, 
Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but it said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is just the first half of the main portion of the book of Jude where, where Jude is describing the, the falsehood of these teachers and the condemnation that's going to come to them. So we're just going to take this first half of, of Jude's condemnation, and we're going to see the reason why Jude wrote this letter. We saw that in verse 3. And we're also going to see him begin to pick apart particularly the character of these false teachers. And we can see this progression through three commands or calls to action. He He is calling on his audience to contend for the faith, to learn from the past, and to apply that to the present. So first we see that we are to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. This is verses 3 and 4. Now from what we can tell in verse 3, Jude had already sat down and was, was preparing to write a letter to these, these same people. Uh, this the same group of of believers whom he calls his beloved, which is a common name given by one believer to another to a group at this time he He was sitting down either to begin writing or he'd, he had already started writing something to them about what it, what he describes as our common salvation, meaning the the salvation that we all share through the gospel of Christ now obviously that can take a lot of different forms. Uh, we don't know exactly what Jude was intending to write about in regards to our common salvation. And we, we really don't know because as far as we know, he never actually finished that original project. Or if, if he did finish it, it wasn't preserved in the same way that, that this letter was. But Jude felt the need to put that aside because he felt the urgent need to address the issue that had arisen within the church. So instead of writing about some facet of the gospel, instead he writes this plea to his, to his readers that they contend for the faith. This word contend is the Greek word epagonizasthai, which means to fight strenuously. If you notice there, in there, there, there's an aspect where, where we get the word agonize. So this is, this is something where he is fighting to the point where, where he is putting his body through agony for the sake of the defense of something else. So in this case, Jude is calling his readers, and that includes us today, to fight hard in defense 
of the faith that we hold to in Christ Jesus. We're fighting against falsehood and in support of the true faith. The faith that Jude describes as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is the faith that has been handed down through all of time revealed in Scripture for us, both the Old and the New Testaments. We see the flow of redemptive history all throughout the Bible. The, the, the beginning where God created heavens and the earth, made it perfect. And man marred that perfection with his sin and threw the entire universe into disorder and chaos because of his sin, which necessitated the Lord promising salvation from sin, forgiveness of sin, that would be promised through the Messiah. And all throughout the Old Testament, he continues to point to, this is who you need to look for, is this person. Coming from this family, from this tribe, from this particular bloodline, who will do these specific things and who is truly the Son of God. And we see that heightened all the more in the New Testament when Christ reveals that He is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies and promises. The faith, this is the faith that calls us to no longer trust in ourselves. To no longer indulge in the sin that brought spiritual death upon each of us. To look to Jesus and to rest in His finished work. To live as He commands us out of a desire to love just as He has loved us. That is the faith that we hold on to, that we fight for, that we contend for, no matter the circumstance, no matter the cost. We're willing to agonize ourselves over this because we are fighting for the truth of the Gospel that we have placed our faith in. So we see from the fact that this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints from the beginning of time. This is an ancient faith passed along from Adam all the way to the present. You know, in, in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens, we, we read about how the Athenians would gather together and would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just wanted to hear what, what, whatever was the, the newest thing around. And Paul enters that situation and gives them the most ancient story in all the world. And yet, this ancient story that never gets old. This is the faith that still brings life today. That is what has been handed down to us. That is what has given us life in Christ. And this is what we must fight for. The very faith that that Jude explained in his description of his audience, those who are called by God, loved in Him and kept for Him, kept by this faith. This is the same faith that we ought to fight for day in and day out. And why? Verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude was compelled to put aside his original writing project because of the dangerous intrusion of ungodly false teachers into the church. Jude does not specifically call anyone out by name in this book. He doesn't take after Paul who would name certain people who were specific enemies of, of the gospel and the way that they're acting. He, he keeps it general. And yet throughout the book, you can just, you, you can sense the derision in his writing as he addresses these people and what they're doing. In verse four, we see that he calls them certain people. Certain people have, have crept in. 
And throughout the rest of the book, he uses the, the word these in a derogatory sense. He's, he's showing like, here's, here's the faith that we hold to, but these people, they have denied that faith by what they are saying and what they are doing. That is what he's getting. And so you, we'll, we'll see this even more. We'll see it in this passage. We see it throughout the rest of it. So, you know, in a, in a month or so, when, when I'm back up here, we'll, we'll see it again that these people are doomed to destruction. Jude says that they have slipped in unnoticed. Now, that doesn't mean that they just skirted around the, the greeters at the front door, went in by a, by a different, by a different door so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be noticed. By the way, shameless plug for the greeter ministry. We, always looking for, for more people to help out with that. Uh, they didn't just sneak in in that way. That wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense. Th- these are people who came in to the church with the guise of Christian faithfulness. They're joined in the work of the church. They gained some level of notoriety within a, a specific congregation. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had any sort of influence on on the spiritual well-being of certain people. So they, they come in, they, they look like they're believers, they get involved, and just wonderful to see how the Lord is using the, these people. And then, all of a sudden, the bait and switch begins to turn, and all of a sudden, their words and their actions don't seem to line up as well with Scripture. Oh, they still claim biblical authority, the orthodoxy, they, they still say that they believe in Christ. But it's hard to tell that from what they're doing. These were trusted people in the church who have started to turn away from the faith that they still claim for themselves. These false teachers who have crept in unnoticed have been designated for this condemnation, Jude says. And well, what is this condemnation. That's just Jude giving a preamble to the condemnation that he's going to describe in the rest of of this passage and beyond. He takes the next 15 or 16 verses to describe the ultimate condemnation that these false teachers will receive and and, and as well they should receive it. And, and, and why they receive it as well. What, what is it about these people that deserves condemnation of this way? It begins right here in verse 4 where Jude describes these, these false teachers as ungodly. As perverting the grace of God. Denying Christ as their Master and Lord. We've been we've been going through the the book of James in the adult Sunday school class, and this kind of ties in with exactly what we've been looking at in in James the the concept that faith without works is dead. You may say that you have faith, but the proof is in your actions. By your deeds, by 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 these people's deeds, we will see the true character of their faith. Their ungodly deeds are exposing the state of their heart. That's what, James, that's what Jude is saying. Excuse me. James says that too, but Jude is saying that here about these false teachers. They've perverted the grace of God into sensuality. So Jude highlights in particular that these false teachers are guilty of sexual immorality. This is, this is just one egregious indicator of their disingenuous faith. Their faith is not genuine if they are willing to be involved in such sexual immorality. And this is, we'll look at this, uh, further. This is not just the only thing that, um, that, that they're doing that, that was sinful. This is just one obvious example showing the the character of their faith that they're not trusting in Christ they're trusting in their own desires and that heart attitude that they they're looking out for themselves and what they want is expressed in their sexual 
immorality. And then they excuse their sin through the grace of God. So they're in effect trying to say that God approves of what they're doing. They would be the ones who would pose the question that that Paul gives in, in Romans 6 verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? They would say yes. Let's let's continue in this because the grace of God allows us to do these things. But what does Paul say in that passage? By no means. Absolutely not. That is not the grace of God. And this was not just a problem that was indicative of Jude's time. We still struggle with this. And this is a, a, a view of the grace of God that the church is called antinomianism. Basically getting rid of the commands of Scripture and just relying on the grace of God to cover all of our sins. Not being willing to put those things to death and express a life that is committed to the service of Christ. That is not what true faith looks like. And yet there are so-called pastors today who promote this same kind of insanity that it's okay to indulge in what the Bible calls sin. That God approves of that and is gracious to you. I've heard one progressive pastor in particular who specifically referred to LGBTQ plus etc. relationships as holy. Brothers and sisters, no. No, absolutely not. There is nothing holy about sin. There is nothing righteous about sin. There is nothing about sin that God justifies. Again, this is not just about sexual immorality. That is, obviously, that is a big issue. One that we're dealing with on a major scale today. But it's not, it's not the core issue. You know, use the old, the old phrase, I don't even remember where I heard this. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. This is just exposing the heart of these people. Their heart is far from God. If they view any num- if they're willing to approve of sin in this way, then their heart is far from God. They have denied Jesus as their master and Lord. If Christ has saved us and we have trusted in him as our savior and our Lord, then that means He calls the shots. He tells us how we are to live. And He has condemned these things that these false teachers are approving of. So you can see why some people might have been confused by this and and concerned about the state of their faith. And that's why Jude had to write this. It was such an urgent issue because... This is approving of things that God does not approve of. Now, you might say, but, but, but wait a minute. We all claim Christ and yet still sin. We all fall into this same pit anyway. Well, you're right. We do still fall into this. Into, into the snare of the deceitfulness of sin. That's why our righteousness is not dependent on us. Our righteousness is dependent on Christ because our righteousness is not our own. It is Christ's Himself. By our faith in Him, He has clothed us in His righteousness so that we don't need to fear the judgment that is to come for those who are trusting in their sin. We don't have to worry about that because it, it, our righteousness is, is nothing and it has been laid aside. We have not trusted in ourselves. We are trusting in Christ alone. But these, 
These people, Jude is writing about. And keep emphasizing these. These people have betrayed the fact that their Master and Lord is not Christ, but the fleshly indulgences of their hearts. That is the danger here. And these false teachers may shipwreck the faith of some people in the church by deceiving them into thinking that certain things are okay when they're really not. This is a dangerous path that they're on. And that, that is why Jude is so adamant that we must fight for this faith at all costs and in any circumstance. So now, after calling his readers to contend for the faith against these sneaky, ungodly teachers, Jude now calls the readers to learn from the past. Learn from the past. So this is verses 5-7. through seven. And here Jude gives three examples from the Old Testament of groups who went against God's authority in the same way as these false teachers. We'll look at each of these Briefly, Jude is going to show us how later how each example applies to the present situation and the false teachers that he is condemning here. These are examples from the Old Testament that, that Jude assumes that his audience knows well because they would have been well versed in the in the Old Testament. So that's why he says in the beginning of verse five, now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it and, and continues on with, with his examples. So the first example here is of the Israelites in the wilderness. So this is after God had saved the Israelites out of the nation of Egypt and the, the slavery that they were in there. He's miraculously brought them out and wiped out a good amount of the, the Egyptian army in, in the process. He's miraculously saved them and, and brought them through the wilderness to this promised land, to this land that he, he intended to give to them. So we see in, in Numbers chapter 14, we see that they, they have made it to the, to the promised land. And instead of just going in and raiding and taking over the land as God commanded them to do, they're they're not so sure right now. You know, may, may, maybe this isn't the right thing for us to do. Let's send some spies in to just get an idea for for the land and what what this what, what the situation is like. Can can we actually make this work? So that's when they send twelve spies into the into the land of Canaan, and they come back and they give a report. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, give a, a great report that they're, they're, they're fired up. They can't wait to get in. This is a, a beautiful, rich land that the Lord is giving us. And because we know that He is going to give this land to us, let's, let's get to it. Let's, let's go and fight. But the rest of the spies, the other ten, paint a very different picture. They say, well, the, these guys are... These guys are huge. We've got giants walking around the, this place. We can't, we can't match up to them. There's no way we're going to be able to make this work. And the whole nation of Israel listens to the ten spies and their picture of doom and gloom. And they're scared of entering the promised land. So they say, we're, we're out. We're done. We can't, we can't do this. So instead of Following the command of God, they have decided that they are going to do what they want to do and they're going to, they're going to steer clear of this. They're going to find somewhere else to live. This is the same generation that has been whining and complaining all throughout the Exodus, through, through the wilderness. Like, brought us out here to this desolate place. Why, why are we still here? At least in slavery in Egypt, we had decent food. We had decent shelter. We're, we're living in tents out here. So this is just another example of them exposing their heart of bitterness and complaining and not wanting to follow what the Lord had, had commanded of them. 
And so we see in Numbers chapter 14, a couple of different places here, um, verses 11 and 12 particularly, the Lord says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Don't forget, they, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Like they've seen God miraculously at work. Think of the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt in, in, his, in his effort of rescuing these people from Egypt. They've apparently forgotten all of that and are only focused on the, the present danger of these people who just happen to be a little bit taller than them. I think the Lord can handle that, guys. But they don't think so. And the Lord is angry with them. So He says, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. He says to Moses, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So we see the wrath of God being poured out on this generation of Israelites because of their, because of their rebellion against God. And Moses convinces, convinces the Lord to not utterly destroy Israel, but to show his, his steadfast love and faithfulness. And so in verses 20 through 23, the Lord says, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. So there's punishment for rebellion against God. That's what we see here. These people were destroyed in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. They didn't trust in the Lord who miraculously saved them from the land of Egypt to miraculously fight for them again just as He had promised to do in giving them this land. And so they reaped the consequences of that. All of them died in the wilderness. They did not get to see the land that God had promised to them because clearly they did not value it. They did not value service to the Lord enough to to go into that land. So that's the first example. The second example is in verse 6. It talks about fallen angels. This is... Most scholars believe that this is referring back to Genesis 6 and interpreting the sons of God that are found there as, as, as fallen angels. So let me read Genesis 6, verses 1-4. through four. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, most Jews would have, would have understood that to be fallen angels. Angels who had chosen to leave the glory of heaven and come down to earth to take wives from the children of man. There were obviously immediate consequences to this in Genesis 6. We saw in verse 3 of, of that passage that the Lord severely curtailed the, the lifespan of man. The men, men had been living for hundreds and hundreds of years and God, God decreed Man's, man's time on earth shall only be 120 years from this point forward. So there's, the, there's immediate consequences to what, to what these fallen angels have done. But there, there's a far greater punishment that is pronounced on the angels that, that Jude gets to here in Jude 6. That the angels who did not stay within their position of authority but left their proper dwelling, 
He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. That's what he says. They chose not to keep their positions in the presence of God where they were in His service. They gave that up so that they could take wives from the children of man. They went against God's clear directions for them. And so, God has pronounced judgment upon them. They are now kept in chains of darkness with no hope of escape until they are eternally punished in the great and final day of judgment. And you may think, well, that, that, that seems harsh. No hope of escape for, for them? Why, why couldn't God show so, some level of the same grace that He has shown to mankind to these, to these people, to, to these fallen angels? Well, think about this. These angels were in a position of authority. They were in the presence of God. Something that none of us have experienced in any real sense. They were in the actual presence of God and chose to reject Him. They had a greater level of revelation of who God is. And so they incur a greater level of judgment by rejecting that which they've seen and that which they've been called to. They're destined for this eternal judgment. The same kind of judgment that has befallen Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the third example here in the, in this passage. Sodom and Gomorrah. This, this is a well-known passage out of, out of Genesis 18 and 19 where the Lord sees the rampant sin that is taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah and in the surrounding cities. And it is such an abomination in God's sight that it required immediate divine action against these cities. And yet Jude says that the destruction that they underwent, this this destruction of hail and, and fire and brimstone, such that those cities have never been erected again. They're completely destroyed, wiped off the face of the earth. That is merely an example of the eternal fire that is to come for all these wretched examples and those who have not trusted in the Lord. I mentioned with the angels that that they had greater judgment given to them because of their greater revelation. Well, think about how many times in the Gospels Jesus condemns those who reject Him and specifically says that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for those people or cities who rejected Him and His message. It's that same sort of, sort of idea as with the angels. There's no hope for these fallen angels, these demons, because of the greater level of revelation that they received, their understanding of God that they rejected. And so, there is even greater danger for those who have heard the Gospel of Christ and have rejected it. They've heard the full story of how God plans to redeem His people and have denied it. This is the danger of knowing the Gospel, even agreeing with it to some measure, and yet denying it in the way that you live. That is what these false teachers are indulging in. That's what Jude will get to. We need to heed the warning of Jude and not fall into the same trap as these false teachers. We need to learn from the past. God's past record of judgment serves to remind us that it is never safe to ignore His instructions. So Jude has told us to contend for the faith, to fight for it. As part of that fight, we need to learn from the past, but it doesn't stop there. When we learn from the past, we must then apply it to the present. That's our third point today. Apply it to the present. 
And we see this, this is the beginning of a new paragraph, at least if you, if you have the ESV. The first thing Jude says in verse 8, after giving these three wretched examples, he says, yet in like manner, these also, these people also. You know the doom and devastation that we just talked about for those people who rejected the authority of God and followed after their passions? You know, these people are caught up in the same exact thing. Jude says that they defile the flesh. We've already seen that in the fact that they've, they, they, they've given themselves over to sexual immorality. They reject authority. Again, seen in the fact that they deny Christ as their Master and Lord. And they blaspheme the glorious ones, Jude says. There's a lot of debate over what that means. Probably what it means is that they, they blaspheme against angels, showing that they reject any level of heavenly authority. If they've denied Christ, then they will also deny His angels and, and His His messengers. The angels were the messengers of God, and yet they, they've denied that, that level of authority in place of their own supposed autonomy of how they ought to live. They think that they have the authority to dictate how they live their own lives. And the Lord will bless it and, and be gracious to them. They claim the authority to do what they're doing on the basis of dreams. That's what it says in verse 8 where he says that they are relying on their dreams. Now this, at this time, in this culture, dreams were seen as divine revelations. So it's as if they're trying to say that the Lord spoke to me in a dream and told me that we're free to live in this way. Grace is bestowed on us. We can live however we want. By the way, there are a lot of Christian leaders, so-called Christian leaders, who are claiming the same thing today. Don't think that this passage isn't relevant to, to today. It's immensely re- relevant to today. These false teachers have no understanding of their proper place underneath God Almighty. And Jude expresses this with a what we would consider a rather unorthodox example in verse 9. The story of Michael and the devil. I'm like, what, what is this story? If you go back in your in your, into your Old Testament to, to search for this story, you won't find it. It's not listed out in, in any Old Testament literature. Uh, we can deduce from other Jewish literature at the time that this was an apocryphal story about Michael coming to bury the body of Moses, uh, which would be recorded at the end of, of Deuteronomy where, it's, where we see that the Lord brought Moses up to the top of a mountain so that he could show Moses all of the promised land even though Moses was not allowed to enter. And so that's the last thing that Moses sees before he dies on top of the mountain and says that the Lord buried him there. According to this story that, that Jude is referencing, the Lord buried Moses using Michael as, as his agent to, to do that, burying him on the mountain. And as Michael is going about this this work, the devil arrives and makes a claim for Moses' body. Basically, he's saying, I have the right to take Moses and his body and and take him into, into hell with me because this man was a murderer. Don't forget how he killed that Egyptian long ago back when when he was just a, a young man. So he's trying to to lay some sort of claim on Moses' life. So some kind of struggle ensues between Michael and the devil. And in the end, Michael pronounces, the Lord rebuke you. And at that point, it's done. Fight's over. The devil is lost. And he, he goes away and Michael continues about his work burying Moses on the top of this mountain in a place that no one, no one knows. If you think about it, Michael had every right 
to pronounce some kind of ultimate judgment on, on the devil based solely on the devil's actions. Showing his claim on Moses' body to be false and then also pronouncing an eternal judgment on Satan for, for what he has done. But that pronouncement of ultimate judgment is not Michael's place. That's not his job. Instead of taking matters into his own hands, he left them in the capable hands of God the Father who will pronounce the ultimate final judgment upon the devil someday soon. We know that that is coming. That has been promised in Scripture. Ultimate judgment will come from the one who is the ultimate judge. We can deduce things and make temporal judgments about someone based on what we see, but we are not God. We cannot clearly see into the heart of any individual. He will be the one who judges the heart in the end. We ought to leave that judgment with Him. Now it's important to note here as we're going through a book that is very condemnatory and making a lot of judgments about certain people. You know, considering the content, the content within Jude and this story of Michael not pronouncing ultimate judgment, which would have been a blasphemy on the devil, by using these examples from the past, Jude is giving a warning to his readers and really to the, to these false teachers that in the same way that, that these people have incurred judgment upon themselves, this is a warning. This is the path that these false teachers are, are walking along. This is the ultimate end of that path. Their destruction, eternal punishment, and eternal fire. That, that is what awaits those who follow down this path. So this is a warning to them. What's more, these false teachers don't understand the danger that they have put themselves in. So really, Jude is, is being gracious in sharing with them the fact that this is the, this is the path that you're on. If you continue in this way, you'll be destroyed like this. That is what, that is what Jude is saying. But, but these false teachers don't understand that danger that they've put themselves in through their sin and rebellion, making themselves their authority instead of God. They're relying on their natural human instincts to guide their actions. They have no frame of reference for the guiding of the Holy Spirit, which calls believers to confession of sin and repentance from it. We confess our sin and turn away from it, turning towards Christ, serving Him by our actions. But these false teachers justify their sin rather than confess it. They lean in and claim the grace of God rather than run from their sin. Their path is one that leads to destruction. Again, this is just the first half of what Jude has to say for these false teachers. And it doesn't get any better as as, as this passage continues. But we who have trusted in Christ and hold fast to the clear teaching of Scripture. We need to be ready to fight for the faith in any circumstance like this. If we see a false teaching creeping up, we need to be ready to contend against it. and Contend for the faith. We know the end of these ungodly people's behavior. We've seen it in this passage. We'll continue to see it as we continue studying through Jude. We need to defend the faith and warn these people of their doom if they continue down this ungodly path. Be ready. Be ready to defend the faith. You know, like I said, it was, it was fortuitous, it was providential that we were reading out of Second Peter 2 for the, for the Scripture reading that Mark did this morning because that, 
lines up very, very similarly to what we've studied here in Jude. But Peter also gives another charge in his first letter that we ought always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that lies in you. That hope is our faith. We must not let it get carried away by false teachings. Contend for it. Fight for it in any circumstance, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father, we are so humbled to see the grace that You have bestowed on us. We, we, cont- we, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins just as the rest of the world, and yet You have graciously saved us from that. You have given us this faith that we are to hold on to, to fight for. Father, I pray that You would strengthen us. That we would be ready to proclaim the true Gospel in the face of falsehood. That we would openly declare the faith that we have in Christ. We'd be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ. To die is gain. May that be our focus, Father. May we hold fast to the faith that You have given us and not be swayed by the waves and winds of other doctrines, but that we would hold to what You have revealed to us in Your Word. Father, may You be glorified as we continue to, to learn from Your Word and put it into practice. That our faith would be clear and evident by the way that we live and by the way that we fight for the faith that You have given to us. Help us in this, Father. We, we are wholly reliant on Your strength your righteousness in order to do this. And now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.